Amen. Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3 tonight. We're looking at Paul's letter to the Ephesians, continuing our study. Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. Ephesians 3, 1 to 6. Before we read the passage, it may be helpful to recognize Paul's key word here, you'll hear it again and again, is mystery. Some people really like a good mystery. Agatha Christie, uh, maybe you like Father Brown's uh, character that Chesterton wrote of, or uh, Lord uh, Peter... Uh, Sir Peter Whimsey from Dorothy Sayers. When I was a kid, I think I read every Hardy Boys book there was. Maybe some of you have read that, or Nancy Drew, or Encyclopedia Brown. I mean, there's just a, the world is full of mystery stories. I, I, I love a who done it. You can't be sure who done it until the last page of the book. Now, the writer, of course, has dropped a lot of clues along the way, but not enough for you to really understand what was happening until the big unveil at the very end. And surprise, surprise, you find out who done it. Well, what is Ephesians about? What is this letter about? It's about a mystery, the unveiling of something that was once a secret, God's secret, that God now wants to declare to you and to the world. And so he wants you to understand it. He doesn't want it to be uh, a mystery to you, uh, a secret to you any longer. And so I want you to consider that as we read Ephesians 3, verses 1 through 6. Hear now the word of God. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Amen. This is God's word. May he write it on our hearts tonight. Let's look to him in prayer. Our Father, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart in the knowledge of you and that you would grant us to know what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints and what is the hope of our calling. And we pray that you would restrain my lips from error and grant that all of us would receive your true word for our good and for your glory, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul talks about mystery again and again, but it's actually a digression in what he really wants to talk about. In verse 1, he begins with, for this reason, and then his attention gets diverted by something he says, 
And the entire chapter down to verse 14 is just sort of an aside. He almost gets sidetracked, as it were. He begins with, for this reason, I, Paul, and then he never really gets to it until verse 14, when he begins again, for this reason, I bow my knees. What he wants, and he bows his knees and he prays. In other words, Paul had just said something in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, that was so good, it was so spectacular, it was so amazing, that all he really wanted to do was pray about it, give thanks for it, and ask God to write it on our hearts, which is what he's going to ask for, for us to know it in the depths of our experience. But he pauses, and he preaches a little bit more, and he says a few more things about it. Uh, So he gets a little bit sidetracked here, and he tells us something about this mystery. And he tells them, because he wants to reiterate how good it is, what this mystery is, and he wants them to believe it, so he tells them why they should believe it, how he received it, and what he's done on its behalf, on their behalf, and and why why then they should listen to him. In other words, he's going to tell you something about the church, which is the mystery, going to tell you something about how he heard about it, God's revelation. And and then thirdly, he's going to tell you about what Paul did with it. He suffered for it, for us. So he's going to tell you something about the church and about revelation, about suffering tonight. I want you to consider these three things then. In, In the first place, really working through the text backwards in some ways, what does Paul tell them? Verse six, he tells them what the mystery is. And it's in, a, in, in some ways, it's just a reiteration in a different way of what he had finished chapter 2 with. What had he said in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22? He had talked about how God had reconciled Jew and Gentile, two estranged peoples who hated one another. And God had reconciled them and made peace between them. And between them and God, and he brought them into one body. In chapter 2, he, he says, so then you are uh, no longer strangers and aliens, talking to the Gentiles, but you are rather fellow citizens with the saints. And you're of the household of God. You're in God's family now. The Gentiles didn't, used to be, but now they're in. And furthermore, he tells them that the point of this is to build this church, a building, into a temple in which God dwells. God's going to live no longer in some building in Jerusalem in the midst of his people. God is going to indwell his own people. He's going to live with us. And and this is so good that he reiterates it at verse 6. This is the mystery, he says, that the Gentiles are what? Again, they are fellow heirs with the Jews, that they are fellow members of the same body, with the Jews, that they are fellow partakers of the promise of Jesus through the gospel. And so this is the mystery, these three together withs. That's, that's the language here. You are heirs together with. In other words, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed and heirs to the promises made to Abraham. Gentiles, and I assume perhaps a room filled with Gentile Christians, You are not in any way second rate, second best, or a second thought in God's mind. You are full fellow heirs. God is not like that father I read about as I was reading an an advice column. Actually, 
uh, read some advice columns to see how the world is handling people's personal problems. It's kind of a fascinating way to look at it from a pastor's perspective. Well, this woman wrote in, she and her sister were due to inherit after her dad passed away. They were due, she thought, to split it 50-50 until she discovered that her dad on the side had another secret family and she had a brother. Well, she wanted to split the inheritance 50-50 with her sister, but her sister thought the right thing to do was to split the inheritance in thirds and give some to this son who was not included in the will. Fascinating little issue to deal with. But you need to understand that our Father in heaven is not a God like that. He's not a Father like that who cuts one out of an an inheritance, who gives more to one than the other. He's never, never wrestled with the question, how much inheritance should I give my children? Oh, no, friends. God the Father gave everything. To God the Son. And God the Son shares it, all of it, with his bride, the church. With his body, of which he is the head. So we are, Paul says, you are co-heirs with Christ of all things, along with everybody who believes in Jesus. What is that inheritance? Well, David described it this way. I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, Jesus described it this way. He says, I promise in my father's house are many mansions and I go and prepare a place for you there and I'm going to take you there where I am. There you will be also. In other words, we will be his and he will be ours and we will dwell together. That's our inheritance, he says. You're co-heirs of that. You're also members together of the same body so that all who belong to Christ belong to you. You're one with them. And there is no inner circle or outer circle of the saved in God's kingdom. Jews who believe aren't first rate. Gentiles who believe aren't second rate. This needs to be foundational to our understanding of what it means to be a Christian in this world. As we relate to people of other denominations, Christians of other races, Christians involved in other ministries, first And foremost, the Bible says, you are already one. You're part of the same body. So obviously then love must rule. But you are also thirdly partakers of the same promise, the promise of redemption, he says. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were promised a savior who would rescue them. Genesis 3 verse 15. Then Abraham was promised that in him all the families of the earth would be Blessed, And that promise is fulfilled in Jesus and all who believe in him will have eternal life. And you are heirs of that promise. You have that assurance, Paul says. And he's so excited about it. He just wants to pray that it would, that the love of Christ manifested in that promise would sink deep into our hearts. But first he says, well, I guess I should tell you more about it. So he tells them a little bit about it. Jew and Gentile together in one house, one family Belonging to God and God belonging to us. Dwelling with us and we dwelling with him. That's the first thing. That's the content. 
But where did he get this idea? And I realize sitting here today, 2,000 years later, none of us probably thinks this is a big deal. I mean, for 2,000 years, it's sort of old hat that, of course, the gospel is for the world. The gospel is for the Gentile. Most of the church around the world is Gentile and not Jew. It's kind of old hat. It doesn't surprise us. But in Paul's day, it was shocking for him to say this. So, so he wants to pause to make sure they'll believe him when he tells it to him. And his argument is, in the first place, where he got this idea. He didn't make it up. He got it as a revelation from God. He got it by God's revelation. You see that language, he says, when verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So it's, it's this mystery, he says, and first of all, he says it's an open secret. That's actually the meaning of the word mystery. In Paul's day, in Jesus' day, actually in the first couple centuries, there were all kinds of what are called mystery religions. Other religions that, that had all kinds of secrets. And as you sort of went up the chain of religion and spirituality, people told you more and more inside secrets of the religion, kind of like the Masonic order and others today. You got to know more the further you went, and it was held back from you. And Paul says, well, not here, not in Christianity. I'm not holding anything back from you. Every Christian is entitled to know this truth. It's not designed for just, you know, some Christians to know. It's designed for everybody to know. It's an open secret. But it's also something, a mystery, something that can only be known by divine revelation. You and I couldn't have discovered this. Paul couldn't have discovered this. Nobody had discovered this until it was revealed. That's why he says it was not made known to the sons of men in previous generations. As it has now been revealed to the holy apostles. Um, and, and that's vital. You recognize what Paul is saying here. He got this from Jesus by revelation. That's why at the very beginning of the book in chapter 1 verse 1. He goes out of his way to remind you Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus. He wants to remind you what he is. What's an apostle? An apostle is a sent one. Somebody with a direct commission from Jesus to speak on behalf of Jesus, to tell you exactly what Jesus thinks. Paul would say, none of this is my idea. I'm just telling you what Jesus says. That's what an apostle is. He didn't send himself. He was sent by the will of God. And that's a reminder to us, friends, that we should never pit Paul or uh, Paul against Jesus or Jesus against Paul. We should, we should never say to ourselves, I, I really like how warm and fuzzy Jesus sometimes seems to be, but I really don't like how, you know, how intellectual or rational or theological Paul seems to be. I love that Jesus told stories, and so he's my guy. But Paul, I just don't get. And, and, then, we, and then sort of pit them at odds with one another. We should never do that, friends. Paul is just telling you exactly what Jesus wants you to be told. It's something that was made known by 
revelation. But thirdly, a mystery is something that was once concealed and is now revealed. It was once hidden in the days of the Old Testament, but now it's made known. And some of you will say to me, but but wait, wait. I mean, didn't the Old Testament talk about saving Gentiles? Absolutely it did. I reminded you of these. If you were to turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in the Garden of Eden, after Adam and Eve said no to God the Father and rebelled against him, we don't want you. God, God turned right around to them and said, I will crush the head of the serpent. In other words, I will destroy the deceiver. The one who enticed you into war against me, God says, I'm going to send one who will destroy him. It was a promise of rescue given to all of humanity. And then more specifically to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 and 2. In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Psalm 2, verse 8, speaking about the Messiah to come, it says that all nations are his inheritance. And so, and so in that regard, that's all known. The Gentiles are invited in, believe in the Messiah. They're, they're invited into salvation. What was not known was the radical way in which the theocracy would end and a new international community would be raised up. See, people in that day, if you were a believing Jew, if you um, loved salvation and you longed for others to experience, you might have hopes that Gentiles would come to faith. You might hope that your uh, Ethiopian friend or your... um, African friend or or some other person would would come to know the God of Israel. But what you were hoping was that they would bow the knee to Israel, that that they would begin to follow the ceremonial law, that they would begin to embrace the dietary law of the Jews, that they would get circumcised like a Jew had to be circumcised, that they would bring offerings of sacrifices to Jerusalem, that they would become part of the nation-state of Israel and David would be their king. In other words, uh, they thought you had to become a good Jew. That's how you would be saved. And the apostle Paul says, no, that's all turned upside down. You no longer have to be a good Jew. You, you just need to believe in Jesus, the Jew of Jews. And whether you're Jewish or whether you're Gentile, you are one in him, reconciled to one another and one before God in a new family. This absolutely affects, friends, how you read your Bible. Your Old Testament is the story of your family. It's your family history of faith. Abraham is your father in the faith. David, Moses, these are your people, the believers of the Old Testament. You belong to them. They belong to you. Promises were made to them about Messiah. You've inherited those exact same promises promises oh somebody once said that that the that the church was born at pentecost when the holy spirit was poured out but that isn't the case at all friends we might put it this way the church was bar mitzvahed at pentecost a bar mitzvah is when someone comes of age in other words the, the nation of israel in the old testament was the church in seedling form And the church has now come of age. And so when we read the Bible and we read the Old Testament, the Jews and everything seems strange. You need to recognize 
It was strange for a purpose, but the promises are yours. And, and the church today, then, is not plan B. It's not some accident of history that the Jews rejected their king, Jesus. And God, in response to that, had to do something new to salvage this terrible thing that had gone wrong. The, the, the church has always been plan A. It has never been plan B. There is no plan B in God's eternal purposes, friends. Um, so he tells you, you can believe this because none of this is my own idea. I'm just the Apostle Paul telling you what has been revealed to me by God. But thirdly, you can believe this because of what I am suffering for it, for you to have it. He suffers for the Messiah he preaches. Look at the language of chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Notice that language, friends. Paul, as we read in Acts today, he was arrested. Actually, he's arrested multiple times in the book of Acts. Sometimes he's released miraculously. Sometimes there's administrative reasons why they release him. Uh, In this occasion, he was beaten and tortured, but he he gets released. He will be re-arrested later in the book of Acts. And he will be arrested because the Jews opposed him And specifically, they opposed this message, that the gospel was not only for them, but for the Gentile. And that we no longer worship God at a temple in Jerusalem, but God's people were God's temple. And that the Gentiles and Jews were on one level playing field. And he was opposed for that by the Jews. They were riled up by that. And they hated him for it. And and so he was arrested, he was imprisoned, he became a prisoner of Nero. He was taken to Rome where he was allowed to basically rent a home and live under what we would call house arrest until such time as he got his uh, court date set. And in that house arrest, he would have been chained to a Roman soldier so that there would be no way of escape. And so he was shackled to a guard day and night, but he had the freedom to interact with friends. He wrote letters from prison. This is one of those letters. He sent them all over the world. And he continued to preach the gospel. And Paul here says, I am a prisoner on behalf of the gospel for you Gentiles, for your sake. But notice his language here. I am a prisoner of or for Christ Jesus. He didn't even mention Rome. He doesn't mention Nero. He knows who's truly running the universe. And it's not Caesar. It's Jesus. Jesus is on the throne, and he is in that prison cell by the command of the Lord Jesus. He is suffering by the command of the Lord Jesus. I'm a prisoner of Christ, he says. Nobody, no man put me here. Nobody else put me here, but I'm here for the sake of the gospel because Jesus wants me to be here. And that is an incredibly comforting an encouraging word to anybody in their sufferings, friends. God rules and overrules all the affairs of men. So whatever the reasons are why people do things, at the end of the day, God is supremely sovereign over all things for the good of his people. 
And Paul could say, I'm in prison, and I'm in prison for Christ. He has me there, and it's okay. They say in the, in the, the frigid waters around Greenland, certain times of year, you can see an interesting thing. And that is this. You can see ice flows going in opposite directions. You can see all kinds of chunks of ice moving in one direction, while other chunks of ice are moving in the exact opposite direction. And the reason for that is this. There are small chunks of ice driven by surface winds. And they're all moving in one direction. But then there are giant icebergs buried under the water. And they are being carried along along by the much stronger ocean current. And it's helpful when we face our own trials, when we face suffering, when we face difficulty. We need to recognize that there are different kinds of forces going on at work in the world. And sometimes we can think that the winds are driving, that whim is driving our trouble. Everything seems unpredictable. Everything seems distressing. But you need them to know that, that though maybe you can't see it, there is an undercurrent operating simultaneously, and it is a far more powerful force. It is the power of God's wise and sovereign purposes for his people in this world. And we need to learn to read our difficulties in the light, not of our circumstances, but of the cross. We need to learn to read our troubles in light, not of our circumstances, but of the cross. There's a a wonderful catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, the first question says, what is your only comfort in life and death? And a portion of the answer to that is this, my only comfort in life and death is that Jesus Christ, my Lord, has died for me, and I belong to him, and I am not my own. And it goes on to say, and not one hair of my head can fall apart from my heavenly father. In other words, it's reminding us that we have a watchful caregiver, our loving, merciful Father in heaven, who will not allow anything to happen to his children apart from his will. And the purposes of his will for us are good. And we know that because of the cross, not necessarily because of our circumstances. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. Don't look at my imprisonment and say, it's all gone bad. Or how terrible this must be for you, Paul. Recognize that I'm here for Christ. And so he was suffering uh, under the sovereignty of God. And that, that, will, that will give you new perspective. And it's that perspective that, that makes all the difference in the world in how we live here. Um, there's a guy named Sir Christopher Wren who helped, uh, who designed uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And the story is told that he went and took a tour of the work that was being done and he interviewed some of the workers. And he went to one guy and he said, what are you doing? This man didn't recognize him. He said, well, I'm, I'm cutting this stone to a certain size and shape and it's going to go in that spot. And the second man he encountered, he said, what are you doing? And he said, well, I'm earning money from my work. And he went to a third man. What are you doing? And the man paused and he straightened himself up and he looked him in the eye and he said, I am helping Sir Christopher Wren build St. Paul's Cathedral. That's what I'm doing. Whatever the toiling is or seems to be, 
What's happening is I'm helping build St. Paul's Cathedral. Friends, that's the perspective we need to have in life. It will cost you to follow Jesus. And it will cost you things you never would have imagined it will cost. But we need to know what Paul knew. There's There's a wonderful statement of his faith in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians 4, when he says... This at verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in the bodies, in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you, since We have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written. I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving. To the glory of God. You see Paul's perspective in his sufferings. It's for the glory of God friends. And it's for the spread of the gospel. And it's for the good of others. And I don't always know how. But Jesus is building his church. And he's building it with me. And through me. And among us. And I I praise God. To be part of a church here. That is willing to suffer for one another. That's willing to take on the burdens of one another. I I praise God to be part of a body, friends, where you are caring for one another. So that when people have babies, food is brought to the home. When people are sick, children are helped. It delights your pastor to see that. You're putting feet on the gospel. You're adorning the gospel with the beauty of the garments of beauty that the gospel produces. It's it's a delight, friends, to know that you pray for one another. That you go out of your way to welcome one another, to talk to one another. This is what the gospel produces in us. And it's so vital that we be that kind of church to one another. That we live out the gospel with one another. In whatever hard circumstances come our way. Because it's all for the glory of Christ. Do you see your situation? As helping the Lord Jesus build his kingdom? It is. He's in charge of all things. And he has you right where he wants you. Right now. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven. We bless you and we thank you that Jesus was willing to suffer 
for our good. And that the Apostle Paul was, and many, many have on our behalf for your glory. I, I pray that you would deepen our conviction that the gospel is worth living for and that the gospel is worth dying for. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let me invite you to stand and we'll sing the first three stanzas of In Christ Alone as a hymn of response.